0: From the vault, high atop the pastoral center of the Diocese of Camden, you're listening to Talking Catholic.
1: Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning into Talking Catholic. I'm Mary McCusker, and with me, as always, is Mike Walsh. Mike, how are you?
2: I'm fine, Mary. I'm doing. I'm doing very good, actually. Uh, we're recording this on uh, what day is today? We're recording this on November fifth. So um, uh, there have been no results to the presidential election at this point, so we won't be making any references to it on the show today, other than, you know, everybody, everybody pray, and chill. pray and chill. You know, and, Mike, you
1: you know I love bashing you on this podcast, but I have to say, these past 48 hours, you've actually been one of the calmest, the most calming people I've talked to. Everyone's panicking and sleep-deprived and anxious, but... Except for a, Carl Peters, you have been
2: remarkably calm.
1: So thank I'm you. The,
2: I'm the director of communications for a Catholic diocese. At, at this point, you know, it takes a lot to flummox me.
1: <laughs> that does make sense. Life so, of people um,
2: <laughs> So it's not just us today, right? We got a, we got a third No, wheel, right?
1: um, Because we are chatting with someone today who is much more bright than you and I, Mike. Um, we've also asked Donna Attaviano britt to join us, and she is the director of the Office of Discipleship and Leadership and our resident missionary discipleship expert to join us um, as our smarter third wheel. So
0: welcome, Donna. (laughs) Maybe I can be a smart wheel with you, Mary, and we'll just leave Mike to be the less smart one. I like
2: it. (laughs) We, we've, we've had, we've had a couple of letters that uh, people would like to hear less of me. And by the way, we'd love to hear. So I am perfectly fine. If you two and our, and our dear guests today, uh, do all the talking, I will happily sit back here and produce from, from behind. Not a problem. That's what
1: we're supposed to do as hosts.
2: (laughs) That's right. Of course, it's not going to happen because I'm going to keep talking anyway, but Conceptually, I'm totally on board with it. So uh,
0: I'm just going to comment that how funny that is that Mike is saying about himself. I'm just going to keep talking anyway, because he constantly razzes me about how much I talk.
2: What is I was in a meeting with Donna yesterday. Here we go. And he
1: keeps talking. (laughs) (laughs) my gosh.
2: (laughs) No no impulse control. (laughs) none, None whatsoever. So, Mary, who's our guest today?
1: Um, I was just about to say, I have to admit, this is probably the most nervous I've ever been co-hosting this podcast because of our guest today. Um, Someone who I've never met until now. Um, And as you can tell, we're recording this on Zoom and our guest is a thousand miles and one time zone away from us. Um, But I've always wanted to meet this person and bombard him with questions. So we are joined today um, by the one and only Michael Canaris, whose name I'm sure many readers of the Catholic Star Herald may recognize from his weekly columns, uh, which have appeared in our paper for almost a decade now. Uh, I've been a contributor and copy editor for the paper for the last several years, and I'm still yet to find one error in any of his columns, <laughs> which is rare. <laughs> so just to give a, a quick background and It's really hard to give a quick background and sum up um, with such an accomplished um, CV and background. Um, Dr. Canaris is a professor at Loyola University Chicago's Institute of Pastoral Studies. Uh, My co-host Mike and I both received our undergrads from St. Joseph's University in Philly, so obviously we're... um, Jesuit institution fans, (laughs) and Dr. Canaris specializes in uh, ecclesiology, ecumenism, and immigration studies. He's an accomplished author and our resident expert on Pope Francis and the Vatican. So Dr. Canaris, um, I know you must be a busy man, but welcome and thank you so much for joining us today.
3: My parents are gonna love this when I send the link to yeah! <laughs> oh, it's like so humbling. Uh really. Uh this is this is way too you're way too kind, but I'm excited to do it. And I let me just begin by saying um honestly that the the weekly uh column that I do for the paper is among my favorite of my professional activities. I really, um, I enjoy it. I love, you know, I have a lot of freedom. I feel like with what I can reflect upon, and um, I just I, I see it almost in a vocational sense as a service uh, to the people of God. It Keeps me connected. I'm a diehard. Eagles and Phillies fan, right? You take yes. me out of South Jersey, but you can't take <laughs> South Jersey out of me. And um, so I, I just love it. I love the relationship that we've been able to to grow uh, with Mike and Carl in particular. And um, it's, it's wonderful. You mentioned St. Joe's. Um, so Loyola is the sixth of uh, Jesuit universities in America out of now there's 27, of which I have earned a degree or taught at. And one of them was St. Joe's. I did some work uh, adjuncting at St. Joe's a few years ago, so I know a lot of people there, and I enjoyed teaching uh, when I was there when I was back home in Jersey. Um, Wow! So, and I also I have an AMDG tattoo, which I was told not to to mention in my job interviews because they think I was weird. I I do on my shoulder. I have a tattoo, so I am I am deeply molded by the Jesuits. Uh, I did my dissertation. Uh, with a Jesuit cardinal, Avery Dulles, on the work of a Jesuit theologian, Francis A. Sullivan, wow. and so I have escaped their clutches. I'm married, but, uh, <laughs> but I uh, I really love all things Ignatian. So,
2: well, you're you're in good company because we can't have a podcast with uh, Donna Otaviano Britt without her talking at great length about her own um, devotion to uh, Loyola, uh, right, Donna?
0: That's right. I love St. Ignatius. I love the spiritual exercises. I think it, it gave, it gives great uh, depth and richness um, to people's lives. So I don't really talk about it that long. Like when I'm on other podcasts, (laughs) (laughs) right? Yeah. But I love St. Ignatius. I love everything about the way he approached the world. And so that's terrific. I'm excited about this conversation too.
2: And, and uh, it's and we're not as much as uh, we're we all have a bit of a Jesuit uh, influence of one way or another. Um, our topic is not going to be on the Jesuits, maybe <laughs> maybe for a future episode. But um, something happened, something came out of uh, the Vatican recently that uh, we really wanted an expert opinion on. And since uh, Michael is our our resident expert, we figured we'd uh, call him up finally. So Mary, what are we talking about today?
1: So today. Um, Michael, we we wanted to pick your brain about the Holy Father's third encyclical Fratelli Tutti, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, (laughs) which was published um, just a little over a month ago. And we wanted to speak with you specifically on this topic because in your writing we've noticed um, you often show this really keen insight into Pope Francis and the inner workings of of the Vatican. Um, so Fratelli Tutti, Donna, Mike, and I, we've done a crash course. We might have used some spark notes, um, but for, for us and for whoever's listening, can you give us an overview of the document?
3: Sure. Uh, so the title Fratelli Tutti means uh, uh, all brothers, brothers all. Uh Literally, and even just before we delve into the the text itself, there was some controversy around that some some conversation around it because um, in Italian fratelli means brothers, but it can also mean siblings, and so the the title in English, the official title is brothers and sisters all uh, but the Pope could have. I think I might. I'll talk a bit about Pope Francis and uh, what a fan I am of his work in a moment. But uh, I hate to begin with a criticism, but um, (laughs) I think that he could have um, evaded some of these problems if he had named it Fratelli e Sorelli, brothers and sisters. All Mm. Um, it's it's actually a direct quote from uh, the writings of. St. Francis of Assisi, and we'll talk about that in a moment. You can't talk about Pope Francis without talking about <laughs> the Franciscan element. But his, um, but so so it's a direct quote. That's the reason he stuck with that. And literally, fratelli can mean siblings, uh, much the same as in Spanish. Hermanos can mean both. Um, but uh, but you know there were some pushback, I suppose, uh, around the idea that that. Uh, women were not fully represented in the title of the document. Mm. To delve a little bit deeper into the document itself, uh, it's a it's an extension, uh, in many ways, of an earlier uh, document that he published on human fraternity. Uh, that was when he was in the United Arab Emirates, and so this is sort of a a, a more profound, more expansive. Um, uh, document or, or, or a text or reflection on this theme of human fraternity, of, of um, relationship uh, uh, across divisions. And it's sort of more profound in some ways than solidarity. That's one term that is a gender neutral term that we use often um, uh, to talk about this relationship building. But he sees uh, fraternity as even more intimate, more um, dialogical, uh, more um, almost tactile, in a sense, the idea of the culture of encounter. It's not simply re- um, respecting or working with one another. It's to, to develop almost familial bonds with people across divisions. And so uh, the document is an extended reflection on that. Cardinal Czerny, who is one of the Pope's closest uh, advisors and um, collaborators, he uh, particularly on issues of migration, uh, he's a, I believe he's Czech-Canadian, dual dual passports. Yeah. Um, and so he framed it in a way that I really love. I, I saw a comment by him where he said, if Laudato Si makes the argument that um, everything is connected in this global, ecological, cosmological sense, care for our common home, care for the stewardship of the earth's resources all of these questions if, if that document the the classic document from a few years ago uh, makes the case that all thing all things are connected uh, Fratelli Tutti focuses on the the idea that all everyone is connected that all people are connected and so you get this um, this commitment to uh, reflecting on on who is my neighbor I mean just to, to speak for one minute about the the heart the sort of beating heart of the document is this extended reflection on the good samaritan parable and we know in english that there's that idea um this familiar phrase who is who is my neighbor that's how the parable starts and in english we have that this idea of neighbor as sort of remember that phrase good high fences make good neighbors you know Mm -hmm. the idea that neighbors can somehow be separate from us we can visit them and, and, and wave to them, but then kind of pull back and go back to our own families and our own homes, and the neighbors are somehow out there somewhere. Whereas in Spanish and Italian, that phrase, in, in Italian it's prossimo, or in Italian progimo, uh, the idea of uh, proximate is present there somehow. The idea that, um, that it's the one who is literally next to us is in relationship with us. It's sort of closer um, in the other languages than neighbor uh, makes clear in English. And so that idea of who we encounter every day, um, that is the one that we are called to dialogue with, love, serve, build relationships. And so um, it's not those distant that we're peering over the fence and looking at, but rather those that we are um, that we are encountering and and um, co-traveling through life with uh, in all these various settings where we live, that's who we're called to build relationship with.
2: Donna, as I'm listening to Michael talk, I hear in the back of my mind things that you've said repeatedly uh, in our conversations about missionary discipleship. Um, you know, as you read through the the encyclical, were you seeing were you seeing elements of what we've talked about over the last two years in the, in the Absolutely. diocese? Absolutely.
0: Yeah, and the struggle, right? This is hard. This is hard, I think, for um, American Catholics that have this long tradition of being focused internally in our churches. So this whole idea, um, Dr. Canaris, of what you're talking about is like, you know, high fences, make good neighbors. No, we want to be out, right? That's what Pope Francis has called us to. So this whole idea of encounter, and I love the word that you use like tactile, right? is to really be present with other people and, and really kind of walk alongside of them. We talk about this encounter and then accompaniment, right? It comes from um, Pope Francis' Joy of the Gospel. And it's, uh, you know, I always, I always say to all the lay people that are laboring across the diocese with this, it's to really how to be mission hospital, how to be outward focused. It is exactly this. You know, it's really how to be with other people. So the the parable of the Good Samaritan is a good one. You know, when have I been the Good Samaritan? When have I been what is it the Levite? When have I been the priest that kept on going? So it's a really great frame for the encyclical, and for those of us to who are trying to live as missionary disciples and form others. To how do you get them to think about how they live?
1: Right, and I'm curious, um, Dr. Canaris. Uh, what, what do you think brought the Holy Father to write this encyclical at this time? What, yeah. what do you
3: think his inspiration was. Well, first of all, call me Mike. It's I, it feels <laughs> so it's, sorry, it feels so kidding. no it feels it feels so formal. I want to have like a, a dialogical, collaborative, dynamic <laughs> conversation. Uh, and Mike. so please, yeah. Um, so so a couple things. So one, uh, obviously Vatican texts addressed to the global church are not dictated by the U.S. election season, right? But I do think that we're given a, a really um, a great tool in this period where conflict and division and um, inflammatory rhetoric are just like at this unbelievable pace. And so I, I, I do think that there's a sort of a providential blessing or element to that. Um, not to say that that's why he released it when he did, but I think that there are some um, um, important points there. Um, one thing, we're talking so much about missionary discipleship, and that is probably the the theme of this pontificate, along with things like mercy, which is closely connected to it. Uh, and a lot of that deals with his uh, background in Argentina. Now, I haven't mentioned yet, but my wife is Argentine. Uh, and so I joke whenever I start a presentation, an academic presentation, that she's my second favorite Argentine. And so <laughs> and some, someone always makes a comment about Messi, the soccer player, you know. Oh, yeah.
1: Can't forget him.
3: <laughs> but uh, um, so so I have this really personal interest between the, the Jesuit aspect and the Argentine aspect. It's not only a professional, theological, academic interest. I have a very personal interest in um, the contours of thought that sort of make up the man Bergoglio, and um, so he is formed profoundly by this school of theology uh, called the Teología del Pueblo, the theology of the people, that um, that grew out of the interpretation of the Second Vatican Council in the Argentinian context. There's a lot of debate about whether this is a branch of liberation theology, whether it runs sort of parallel to liberation theology, because uh, liberation theology is really focused on a Marxist socioeconomic critique in many ways of um, of theology, uh, of the Church's position in society. and. Uh, the Argentinian branch doesn't focus as much on the economic piece. There are elements to it. It focuses more on a theology of culture. And so of, um, it takes these uh, important insights into what forms the spirit of a people. Uh, how is a, um, the insights of a particular people mystically incarnated in the lowly, forgotten, excluded uh, periphery is a word that's big for Pope Francis and so um, this document Fratelli Tutti um, really m- as are most of his um, longer pieces text and things <clears throat> it's really rooted in this theology of the people from Argentina one of the classic examples or the the uh, images that he uses here he uses it elsewhere in Evangelii Gaudium and other places is this idea of the polyhedron and so of course you know for for most people in the pews, for even graduate students, that is just right over a lot of people's heads as to what does he mean when he talks about society as a polyhedron. And so I don't have it here because I'm uh, in a different room, but on my desk, I keep um, uh, one of the Scategories cubes. Do you remember Scategories, the game mm-hmm. where you roll the cubes? And so that the die that has all the letters on the flat faces, that is the easiest way to show someone a visual... Uh, example of what is a polyhedron. And so what he is saying when he references this all the time, it it impacts both his vision of the church and of society, of globalization and society, is that it's different than a sphere. So on a sphere, uh, I picture like a metallic smoothed sphere where every point is equidistant from the center and everything is homogenized and smoothed out. And so he sees both the church and society, in, instead of that, he sees it as this categories cube. He, ski, he sees it where the local church or local cultures maintain their distinctive faces. There are also edges between them. And so um, that's his vision of the local church in relationship to the unified whole of the, of, of the, the larger body of Christ, you know it, the, the faces are held together as, as a unity, but they maintain their their um, particularity, and so that is an, a, a huge part of Fratelli Tutti, Is is this this argument that the that these faces of the the church, these faces of uh, a globalized culture, remain in contact with one another and they uh, inform one another without sort of breaking off into the ether, but without homogenizing so that everything has to look exactly the same. I think that's one of the the reasons that the original question here I've talked quite a bit is, why did he write this? But I think it's to make that case, to make that case that this particularity matters. Now, there's a danger involved as well, because you say, think of it like this. If if we're going to say in the Argentinian church or the Vietnamese church or uh, 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 the Nigerian church, you can say, this is how we do things here. So the implicit danger there is a sort of nationalism where, where there, there, there could be a xenophobia, there could be a fear of different ways to do things. And so you have to balance out, what does it mean to really appreciate a culture with its food, its music, its liturgy, um, it's pilgrimage, that's a huge part of the Latin American culture, right? The These different Marian devotions. How do you emphasize the particularity without saying, if you're Argentinian, you must ascribe to our vision of what it means to be Catholic. And so that's the tension uh, that he's that he's working to overcome in a document like this.
1: So I'm curious, you know, reading through, you know, a lot of the topics, I kept looking at it from such a U.S. perspective, right? But the way you're mentioning different countries, you know, they're all reading this too. So do you think it's written in a way that no matter where you are, um, it, it will resonate or it's food for thought and it, you know, transcends countries, cultures, like, yeah, I- it accomplishes that?
3: I think, yeah, I think it attempts to, I mean, no document could ever do that perfectly. Right. But I think, but I think it certainly attempts to speak to a global church. Um, there's also, I have some sort of minor critiques around the editing process. It's incredibly long. And he, have you
1: read the whole thing? I have to ask that.
3: <laughs> have I personally? Yes. Yes, I have. I, I I read it. I I actually read it before it was released. Spanish is way down the list of my language competencies because wow. I studied Italian much more than I did Spanish, but my wife speaks Spanish. And so we use it in the house a little bit more now. And so it was leaked. The document was leaked first in Spanish Uh, a few days. I didn't have an embargoed copy like journalists do. And so uh, I I read it first in Spanish, gleaning out of it what I could Right, I'm hacking my way through it. but, but, uh, But there were things that jumped out at me even in that first read. Uh, one of which was the just war critique. We'll come back to that maybe. But then, uh, so I read it once in Spanish and then I read it carefully in English uh, as well when it came out. How and long did
1: that take? I'm just curious because I'm here with my summary notes and it took me a while.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's a, it took a, a, a good couple of days to really yeah. delve deeply <laughs> into it. And he, he there there are pieces of it where he cites himself First of all, let's be clear that he didn't write, sit down with a pen and write this document. Mm-hmm. That's not how these papal documents come to be. So there are ghost writers and collaborators that are involved in it because it's not really of the Francis... Um, personality to constantly be citing himself. It's obvious that it was his team of writers that were doing that more frequently than he would do. I mean, for instance, he didn't even want his own face in San Paolo, the church where they have all the, the popes, the portraits of the popes around the top in Rome. He didn't even want his portrait included. And they said, Holy Father, you have to do this. People come from all over the world to to see this. And so you have you can't be the first of the 266 wow. not to have your your image that, up God. there. Yeah. Uh, so So he gave in and did it. But he, he's not the type to be citing himself at length, and I, I I think it was actually a disservice to the way the document is constructed because I think it would have been better to just footnote that and direct people towards it than to restate uh, in these extensive long paragraphs. It just made the document incredibly long uh, because there's 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 whole citations of his, of where he wrote similar things elsewhere, uh, and I think they could have. They could have tightened it. They could have edited it. They needed a good copy
0: editor. So <laughs> right, there's your next job. I'll get you a job. <laughs> um, Can I ask you a question? Sure. So I want to tack on to this is, so for the average American Catholic sitting in the pew who's not going to read through this particular document, yet they've heard about it, right? Because this document has been written across the, how shall I say, the entire spectrum of the Catholic press. Sure. You know. What does the average Catholic in the pew, especially here in South Jersey, right, where we've had this whole initiative now for almost two years of this whole concept of missionary discipleship and how to, how to give people an encounter with Jesus and how to really do true accompaniment, you know, with someone else. What is the essence of this document that they won't necessarily sit and read? What do they need to take away from Pope francis into their hearts that changes their life?
3: I would say uh, I'm an ecclesiologist by training, right? Someone who studies the church. And so I tend to read everything through a lens of uh, ecclesial membership. And I would say the key theme to this document is like we said before, a culture of encounter, a way of how can we position ourselves to learn from those we engage every day, particularly the poor, the excluded, migrants, Um, those who society ignores. And so how can we not only engage with them, I think sometimes the tendency is to say, how can we care for them? And this is making a very different case than that. This is saying, how can we let our lives be interrogated by them? How can we learn from them? Not simply that they have something to receive, from the rest of the church, but that the church has something to learn from them, from from those who dwell in the shadows. You know, if we, the Second Vatican Council has a document called Lumen Gentium, the light to the nations. And if the church is really the light to the nations, we have to focus that brilliance on those who are in the shadows, those who are forgotten, those who are deemed somehow disposable. And so, um, I think that the document is interrogating our consciences to do that. And it's much like scripture. I mean, if you go to the document with some preconceived notion, you can proof text a bit and say, see, this says what I already think. It's here. You can do the same thing with scripture. You can you can make the case, really, for any kind of position. You can move the words around to make it say what you already believe. The challenge is to how to let a document like this, or scripture itself, or the tradition of the church, interrogate us to say, where am I not doing this? Where am what? Where am I not living up to the the ideal that's put forward here uh, uh, that can that can uh, bring life to the world? And um, there's a there, you know even think about the, the document in terms of relationship and bridge building in the American context. It's hard to dissociate. Like we said, we're, we're recording this while everything is being debated about the electoral college. But there can be people who say, I am certainly not xenophobic. I am all in favor of immigration reform. I am all in favor of uh, racial justice. I am not xenophobic. But yet, they're xenophobic at their own Thanksgiving tables with someone who uh, has a different political opinion than they do. So how do we build relationships, build bridges, at this global level, that's important. I'm not saying it's not important, but also at this very personal level. And so, I think that that is the great insight of of the Francis Pontificate as a whole, is um, teaching us to refocus our um, our attention on those we co-travel the journey of life. Where, you know, he talks all the time about uh, a, a church uh, in salida or en camino, on the way. That's the words he uses the most out of any in his sort of gestures and homilies and and reflections. Going outside, going to the peripheries, like not staying in the structures of the church. I picture another parable, the um, prodigal son parable. Remember when the father rushes out on the road before the son has ever confessed his wrongdoing, the, the father rushes out on the road to meet him. And that's his vision of the church. That is what Pope Francis sees the church doing, rushing out to the, the gaping wounds of society. Um, and so I think this document is one step towards a, 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 a more profound appreciation of that.
0: So, so can I ask a follow up question, Mary? <laughs> so I wonder if your experience in all that you know Is there any particular uh, uh, culture or a particular country that actually is sort of taking all of his teachings in over all of these years and there's significant change in terms of this, okay, we're going to be the father to the prodigal son and go rushing out. I just wonder if in your experience, you have seen any of that. I'm thinking, okay, at least you're in Chicago and you've been to Uh, many other places your wife is from Argentina like what do you have in sort of that international experience and going do you see it anywhere or can you like kind of relay to us something here in South Jersey that we could take a nugget and think about it here
3: yeah I mean I don't see any place where it's being done uh, completely effectively right that's not to say that it has no resonance or isn't transformative in the world, but um, there's not an example that leaps off my mind of a place that is is succeeding at this. What I see is there are particular pockets where I am profoundly inspired by the work that um, that is done. One of which, you know, in Rome. I spend a lot of time in Rome. Please look it up. Come to Rome with us at, at Loyola Chicago. I run these programs uh, in Rome. It's like the highlight of my years. So I'm always trying to get people to come. You don't have to be a credit-bearing student. Yes, <laughs> everyone in the diocese is invited. You don't have to be a credit-bearing student at Loyola to come on these. Uh, they're 10-day uh, immersive um, classes that we offer uh, in the summers usually. And I think my years.
1: boss, Mike Walsh, should um, send me for an education. You know
3: what? I am
2: am a big fan of embedding Embedding my staff in places like that. So go do it, Mary. Yeah. Good blessing.
3: So in one of the days when we go to, when we're over there, when I take the groups over there, uh, I lived in a community over there called the lay center, which is a particularly important one of these experiences. When I lived there, there were um, 22 of us from 18 countries living together, praying together, eating together. uh, And then you go to the different universities throughout Rome to study or teach and then come back together. So I cannot say enough, Amazing things about how the Holy Spirit is at work uh, at a place like the lay center uh, and i 'll send this link they'll be this will be tweeted out internationally when they uh, they hear <laughs> their good uh, they hear their their name mentioned here but another one that comes to mind when we 're there we spend one day with the Santa Gidio community, which is a, a lay community um, in Rome that um, we spend the morning working with them they have a a pharmacy where they provide uh, medical supplies supplies to the homeless people of rome they have a school that teaches uh migrants reach recently arrived the italian language and culture so you have people that have swam across the, the mediterranean and they're learning english for free they have a restaurant that is run by um well well the the wait staff and bus boys and and, and the people that you're encountering in the restaurant all have special needs to prove that that the dignity of labor is something that every human person uh, needs and deserves. They run night prayer every night since the Second Vatican Council in Santa Maria uh, in Trastevere, which is um, what the, the, the part of Rome where the original Christians gathered. So it was like the oldest Christian community in Rome was in this neighborhood. And it's this beautiful Uh, basilica like you would imagine in Italy with mosaics and all, and that um, they have had night prayer there every night since the Second Vatican Council in a multitude of languages. And then they, um, uh, for Christmas, they take all the seats out, you know, there's no pews in the Italian big basilicas like that. So they take all the seats out, they place um, tables in there, and they have the homeless of Rome come eat in this basilica, they're given gifts uh, that are wrapped for Christmas, and they're served the food by like the dignitaries, ambassadors, the mayor of Rome, etc. And someone said to me once, "I would—I haven't been there for that, uh, to be honest. I've read a lot about it, and I know the community well, but I haven't been there for the Christmas celebration." But someone said to me uh, about it, "Like this is a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. The, you know mm-hmm. the poor and excluded eating under the 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 glories of." of beautiful art and architecture with, with Jesus looking down, uh, being served by the, the wealthy and powerful. Um, so something like that, uh, Pope Francis has, has um, uh, had a very strong relationship with the Santa Sant'Egidio community. Uh, I could talk about church politics forever, but even the, um, uh, the, the current uh, cardinal in, I think it's Bologna, was a former uh, member of that community, Matteo Zuppi. And so um, he is widely seen as one of potential someday way down the future successor, we hope, uh, along with some other cardinals like Tagle, who is uh, uh, also imbibes the spirit of Pope Francis. But the, the St. Egidio community would come to mind as one of these places that is being enlivened by the uh, the Pope Francis vision of the church and where it is really concretely, physically, present that you can see uh, the work that they're doing when when we go with them we work with them we eat with them we pray with them uh, and and they're they're living this mission the missionary discipleship mission in a particularly profound way um, I think that's one example it's not a national you. one but it's a you know.
0: that's a great example thank you
3: it does uh, it does seem like
2: over the course of his his writings um, you know he's really you get the impression that he's really been focusing on the divinity of God that that um is in each of us but in also in everything around us you know he talks about creation he talks about us you know i I did read quite a bit of of this particular encyclical and I liked the way it was broken i was there was a there was a fine narrative quality to it it was definitely a lot of words definitely a lot of uh <laughs> A lot of commentary, but, you know, I really thought they did a good job of sort of, uh, he did, or the writers did a good job of really, of really moving it along. Um, Even, even with a couple of digs uh, sort of in the end of it, um, or later in the, in the encyclical at the UN, which um, I, you know, it, it, Maybe it's maybe it's because I'm an American, and so my perspective on the UN is different than others. But I, I actually found that a little surprising that um, he takes these shots at the UN. Did you have any idea, like sort of where that came from?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I assume it's this idea that the church is more than an NGO. So he's certainly in favor in favor of a. Um, an appreciation for the benefits of globalization, but he also sees this sort of dark underbelly of, of globalization because um, there are people that the, the this globalized uh, uh, society, which has developed over the last hundred years, um, has um, increased exponentially increased their level of exclusion. You know, uh, and so I think that um, that. The idea that the church is called to move beyond um, the idea—the idea of, of uh, it as an NGO, right—that there is more. There's a more spiritual message that needs to be present there, and so that's where some of his critiques uh, of. of they're particularly powerful. The um, the one on the just war theory in particular, I think, is that is the most shocking piece of this document. Uh, there is a I wanted uh, to
1: ask about that. I'm glad you brought it up.
3: <laughs> there is a critique, and this ties in with your question, Mike, about the UN too, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, intergovernment relationships or international relationships, um, that he says that the church can no longer support The just war theory. So, people who don't know what that is, it goes back to Saint Augustine. It's the idea that in certain circumstances, a war is just. Right? It's not. It's just the word related to justice, not the word related to mere like you know mere war. Just war. It's it's what does it mean to have a fair, uh, reasonable uh, war that is that is defensible say. And so he critiques the idea that, um, that the church can be involved in supporting war, uh, which is really radical. I mean, that, that is, that is, uh, a, a striking statement. It mirrors in some way, his, um, his eradication, uh, from the catechism on the admissibility of the death penalty, yeah. sort of a related issue in some ways. Um, and so these are were, these were controversial statements. I mean, to put it mildly, uh, there are a number of, of theologians um, who did see that the death penalty would in fact be uh, uh, defensible over the long history of the church, because for so long it was being enacted by Christians towards Christians. Um, and so I wrote a piece recently where I compare Avery Dulles and uh, on one side, uh, my mentor at, at Fordham with um, Pope Francis and Cardinal Supich from here in Chicago on the other uh, around this issue of the death penalty. And uh, I come down, as much as I love my mentor uh, Avery Dulles, I come down on the side of Pope Francis. I agree with his uh, read on the situation uh, around the death penalty. But these these are striking developments in um, in his vision of the Church. I mean, they are they are overturning, in some cases, a thousand or more years of uh, uh, accepted positions, but I think my argument would be that that is done in continuity with the magisterium and the teaching of the church, not as a, um, a reversal in some way to it, it's a development uh, to it. There are some parallels to how we interpret the Second Vatican Council. Uh, uh, around w- what impact that had in the life of the church, what, what was new there, what was continuous there. That's an ongoing uh, debate, probably the dominant debate of, um, of the last 50 years since the council is how to interpret that document. Um, you
2: know, I think Pope Francis is often uh, labeled, and I, I don't know, I wouldn't, well, I'll leave, I'll leave this up to you. I think he's often labeled as a, an activist pope, um, it, because of some of these, you know, he's definitely made comment that, as you just said, is something you would never anticipate a Pope ever saying, um, certainly not in the previous 2,000 years. I, from your perspective of of Francis the man, Francis the Pope, Francis the Pope, you know, do you think that this is a, an accurate label, semi-accurate, wildly inaccurate?
3: Um. Well, I I think he's offering something valuable, something new. Uh, Activist seems to to, uh, um, imply to me that it would like, that he's in in for like burning down the system in some way. And that is certainly not what the, 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 uh, his perspective is at all. I think that uh, he's, he's, A quite conservative thinker on many topics uh in fact he doesn't go far enough for the catholic left in many uh many of his pronouncements whether it be about women whether it's this recent controversy around the civil unions uh so there's a you know there's a a a, a tension there what i see in terms of his his contribution so shall we say uh it comes back again to what we talked about earlier with the excluded peoples because uh, if you know anything about the history of 20th century theology, the, uh, the bulk of it up through the immediate post-war period and even up till the pontificate of John Paul II was uh, framed around the idea of non-believers. So it was sort of the idea, I think, of like Karl Rahner's theology. He lived from 19, I believe, 84, uh, from the, the turn of the century till around 1984, basically the, the course of the 20th century. And so his idea was how can the church sort of defend these beliefs against the 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 uh, the culture in the wake of the enlightenment. How can we say this is not superstition to believe these doctrines to believe that that God sp- speaks to us in in the word of God and in the incarnation through Christ. And so how can we Sort of defend our beliefs against a culture that was becoming skeptical of them. So, a lot of the questions was around non believers. And Gustavo Gutierrez says that era of the church has passed. And so, the central theological themes of our day are not around those who would be deemed non believers. They are, it is focused on those who society deems non persons. Uh, So, the idea of how can we. How can we focus a church on these groups of people that are viewed as disposable? Mm -hmm. Again, use the same word I used earlier. And that um, impacts or influences all of these questions, because the ones who are deemed disposable are the homeless, are undocumented migrants, are victims of of war uh, in Syria who are fleeing violence, are those on death row, um, so that the 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 his activism is to bring the church into direct, unmediated pastoral contact with those populations. I really see that as what he views as his mission. And uh, again, like we we started off here with Ignatius, and there's all this Ignatius stuff I could talk about with. Francis, but it's important also to talk about this Franciscan element, like bifocal lenses to study uh, Francesco. And so on one side you have um, this Ignatian piece, but this, this Franciscan piece is among the most important. Even in the earliest moments of the conclave, when he was elected, you know, there's a lot of speculation. Well, it's beyond speculation. He commented to people that before the election, he was second in the running under uh, Ratzinger, the previous conclave. And so he sort of came in second. And so they said, had you won, what name would you have chosen? And he said, John the 24th. Mm. And so before the conclave, there was this idea that that was sort of what would have happened had he been elected. And then when, when the conclave came up that elected him, that was probably still percolating in his mind. And the Brazilian Cardinal hugged him once the final vote tally was in and everyone applauded and whispered whispered in his ear, do not forget the poor. And it, Francis has said, in that moment, I knew I had to take the name Fra- St. Francis, St. Francis of Assisi. Wow. Um, and so it was that, uh, that is from the earliest moments, this idea, I mean, even now he signed the Fratelli to document in Assisi. He, soon afterwards, he named the custodian of the Basilica there as a Cardinal, uh, uh, highlighting this Franciscan element it is it it is the lens along with he is a dutiful son of Ignatius and I could make a case we don't have enough time now but I could make a strong case as to where this Ignatian piece is all marbled through the the thing as well but on this one the title of the document is taken from St. Francis his name is from St. Francis the the focus on the poor and on peace building certainly Franciscan Um, the, the whole piece there's a, there's a there's a franciscan element that is the um the dual side to this pontificate along with the ignatian one
1: mm. so i'm curious comparing um this encyclical to you know his his previous ones where where does this fall i'm correct me if i'm wrong but even uh, evangelii Gaudium, that people were saying this was extremely bold laudato si i think i'm um, Pretty sure you know people said the same thing about that. In your mind, is this
3: any more bold than those previous two? Um, bold. I think that certainly these 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 elements, which are not the, the the central theme of the thing, this thing on the just war, the thing on the the um, uh, the death penalty. There's some economic critiques in there. They're quite bold. Uh, overall. I don't know that that would be the first word I would use because I, I think it's more a um, a profound implementation of the uh, the the vision that he has for the church and of Catholic social teaching in general. I think that it's um, it, it, there's nothing radical in the sense of revolutionary about it. It's a deepening, immersive. Um, expansion of of this the 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 what, what people joke as is, is the best kept secret of the Catholic Church Catholic social teaching yeah. uh, I think that it's an implementation of that and again to go back to Donna's work the uh, the missionary disciple piece you know a lot of that comes out of the 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 Apatacita document that he was the editor for uh, which was in Brazil uh, earlier than that you, these are the, the conferences that were held by the Latin American bishops about implementing the Second Vatican Council, planting it in the soil of Latin America. So Medellin, Puebla, aparecida these were gatherings of Latin American bishops where they, um, they were taking the insights of the Second Vatican Council, sort of planting it in the soil of their own um, uh, uh, society. And so that, that aparecida one, uh, I, I think, to my knowledge, that's the earliest that he's using the phrase missionary discipleship. That's where that some of that is rooted in that that conversation. And so um, I think it's a fuller flowering or a fuller development of that um, uh, movement than it is a um, uh, a revolutionary change in some ways. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a deepening of what what is there before.
1: And it seems to kind of touch on really relevant issues you know I know that COVID was addressed sure. um, a number of you
2: know it was very in the moment
1: yeah right and so you can say you know racism for example has always been an issue access to health care they've always been issues but I guess you know as these things come to light in many ways um, you know is is that something you feel this was what was the word you just used, Mike? Timely, yeah, uh, topical. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Is that how he kind of, you felt he may have framed this around? How much did, did these recent events come into play, do you think, when he when he writes this?
3: So I, I think if, when scholars look back at our period today, our period in history, when someone 200 years from now is going to be writing about our era, what were the signs of our times as living in the 2020s? Of course, there'll be things like COVID and all. But the overarching definition will be that we live in this age of migration, that, that more people are on the move than ever before in human history. And so that will be the defining issue of our century. And so I think that in Fratelli Tutti, in the pontificate as a whole, this becomes... Uh, what Francis sees as his mission to highlight the um, the call to a Catholic understanding, a robustly Catholic understanding in, in continuity with the tradition around the dignity of human people, the right to migrate, the right also to not have to migrate through economic oppression or through um, uh, climate change, for instance. And so these realities around migration are going to be one of the defining um, elements of this pontificate that will have long-lasting effect. Uh, and this document is just another example of where he foregrounds that issue as, um, as, perhaps more than any other, the defining one of his pontificate. Yeah,
2: I would, I would agree with that. I'm, I you know, we, we were at the, um, well, you guys weren't there, Mike, I, I don't know if you were there, but when there was the, um, the convocation of Catholic leaders in Florida in 2017, you know, uh, Cardinal Tobin, um, you know, talked about, um, Pope Francis's connection to La Pedusa. And he tells a story about how Pope Francis was told repeatedly, no, you can't go, no, you can't go. And then at one point he he made his own reservations and the airline called up and said, uh, you should call the Secretary of State and you should know that the Pope has just made his own reservations to go to La and, um, this And this was an enclave or, or an island in the Mediterranean that was receiving a lot of um, refugees from North Africa and the Middle East. And, um, you know, so from the very beginning, you know, he's really seen that way. And it's, you know, a lot is going to be written, I think, on Pope Francis over the years. And certainly a lot has been written now and there have certainly been concerns. But I think I think history will bear out that at the one thing you will not be able to claim is that um, Pope Francis didn't care about humanity. You know, when when I, I remember watching. When he was named um, and came to the balcony and and he was he he was announced as you know Papa Francesco and the 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 fact that it was you know so he so he hadn't taken a previous name he was he was going to be Pope Francis the first someday he'll be referred that way um, and uh, I remember thinking there going wow that's a, and that, so my first thought of him was this is someone who's going to go in completely new directions and I think ultimately that'll be shown to be very beneficial. But um, Mike, thank you so much for for joining us on the podcast this week. We really appreciate it. Um, I think I can uh, safely assume that my colleagues Mary and Donna will make sure that you uh, are a regular contributor to the podcast now, not just one of our Catholic Star
3: Herald writers.
1: Own podcast? He can take over. Yeah, for really. No, I, I,
3: I will. I, I really enjoyed this conversation, so I hope we can do it again. I mean, I'm really excited to to um, continue to deepen our relationships. I mean, that,
2: you know, uh, we are I'm very much on board with that. And uh, I will encourage both Mary and Donna to uh, take you up on your uh, offer to to go to uh, Rome at some point for the uh, that Loyola trip. And actually, uh, the question, I, I've, I've been a part of the diocese for five years now, and everybody keeps saying, uh, Mike, when, have, they, have they sent you to Rome yet? And I go, here five years we had uh, we, we've had n- numerous occasions to be in Rome and I haven't made it to the Vatican. Yet. You're a workaholic, though. So I am a workaholic. I, I keep offering to go to work, <laughs> but uh, I wanted to go for the quinquennial, but it didn't didn't work out. Um, at any rate, Mike, thank you very much for joining us. Donna, thank you very much for sitting in. Mary, thank you much, very much for asking so many relevant questions so I could stay quiet for most of the, uh, the episode. And to our listeners, uh, thank you very much as always for listening and we will be back next week.